My name is uh, Lam Wing, and I'm on the World Taekwondo Demonstration Team uh, that recently won the Golden Buzzer at America's Got Talent. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. First of all, before we start, I want to thank Michelle, your girlfriend, for reaching out to our team and getting in touch with us. I watched America's Got Talent because it went viral in my sort of Facebook feed and everybody was sharing it. And I was thinking to myself, oh, there's all these Asian phases. I knew that there was obviously a Korean team, but I was like, oh my God, I wish there was like a Vietnamese, some Vietnamese people on this team so I'd have a reason to, to, to get into the mechanics of how that uh, whole thing was put together, the show was put together. And, you know, a week later, or so, you know, your, Michelle reached out and emailed our team, and I was so delighted and so happy. So I want to thank Michelle for reaching out and um, making contact with us. Yeah, no, same here. I, I'm thankful for her, too. It, uh, it, basically, we're just watching one of your shows, and then she's a huge fan of your show. She's like, hey, what if I reached out to... And Ken and his team, and I'm like, yeah, go for it. Um, as simple as it sounds, right now we're talking. Um, for her, she's just like been ecstatic about this whole experience. Like she's, you know, rewatching the Vietnamese episode, and she pauses and she's, you know, make sure she doesn't want to miss like a single word. So for me, it's um, I'm grateful for her connecting with me and you. But for her, she's just been super excited just about this whole entire process. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, if you're listening to this um, episode. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you today, Long? Um, I know that our Vietnamese people are scattered throughout the entire world today, um, in different parts uh, of the globe. Uh, I think for us, it kind of means wherever we are, um, we have an opportunity to overcome a lot of endeavors. And no matter what that is, we will overcome that and become successful. Um, never forget our parents' sacrifices. And most importantly, always be rooted in our culture. So to me, that's what it means. How did your family come to the United States? Um, we came to the United States in a program called HACO. Um, it was designed for basically uh, uh, Vietnamese soldiers from the South um, that fought during the Vietnam War. And through the United States new law, uh, my family was able to come uh, uh, later on uh, in the mid 90s. Um, and so from then, my family is just trying to adapt and live life in America. So you, you know, I know that the HO program, it's, uh, it takes many years, you know, once you apply and to get into that program, right? So basically you knew or your family knew that you were all coming to the United States many years before you actually arrived here, right? So before you were, you, I, this is my guess, but before you were even born, your family knew that you were all going to head to the United States, right? You know, I never thought about that. That's probably true. Um, I don't recall much. Uh, my childhood growing up was just going to school or going to preschool uh, in Vietnam and then going to kindergarten, of course, doing martial art at like four or five years old. But uh, I don't ever remember leading up to you know, mm -hmm. the point that, hey, we're going to be leaving. What I do know is that, you know, I think towards like the week before we left, we started packing and then we start doing a lot of farewell dinners. Um, and I was a kid. I just thought, oh, we're going to a different, you know, different home didn't really ring a bell that I'll be leaving my country yeah. <laughs> to start a new life somewhere else. How many siblings do you have? I have two older brothers. Um, so I have uh, 
my oldest brother is Anan. Uh, he's seven years older than I am. And then Anhui, he's a middle uh, brother. He is uh, four years older than I am. Got it. So those guys were a little bit older and they probably remember or probably have heard in the family, hey, we're going to be leaving yes. to the United States at some point. Right. right? right. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder what people think of when they know in advance, right? It's not mm -hmm. like the wave that came in the 70s were, okay, you have like two minutes <laughs> to pack up your shit. Right. Yeah. right. What, what's the difference between, hey, we have five years mm -hmm. until the paperwork kicks in and we're going to be leaving. What's the preparation for that like? Yeah. You know, talking to my mom about it um, after, you know, I have kind of understood why we're here in the U.S. Uh, she always talked about the preparation of uh, saving a lot of money just saving, 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 mm -hmm. um, because in her mind, I think in my dad's mind too, at the time, starting a new life in the U.S. is just completely a different ballgame from what they're doing in Vietnam. My mom was a teacher and then my, my dad was a architect. So eventually when they realized that they have to come to the U.S., my mom said that they have to have new careers, right? They have to have new skill set, that they learn English. Um, so while they focus on that in the United States, they know that they need to have a lot of money so that they can get started with the three of us in the U.S. So her story is just saving a lot of money um, and just being prepared to just open up to anything possible. Um, and for her, it was mainly English. And my dad was mainly to find a job immediately. Uh, but yeah, I think that was their goal before they left, just saving up and then just getting their uh, mind, mind, mindset to be open to anything that might come their way once we land um, the United States. I wonder what went on in their mind. You know, it's just yeah. so curious to to think about, you know, they were probably in their mid-30s or so. Yeah. You know, three young kids and, you know, having to, to, to resettle. Um, yeah. What do you remember about growing up in Vietnam, uh, I know you were, you were five when you left, but I mean, there are some things that, uh, that I know, um, based on talking to you before about, um, Taekwondo and what, you know, what was life like for you in Vietnam? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because although I was five, I can talk to you about a lot of different memories. And you I think can or cannot, I can, I can, because, uh, I think it's, it, I'm grateful to my family because everything in Vietnam was together. We're, we're living in one roof. We had about, you know, four uncles, three aunts. It's a very typical Vietnamese household. And I think because of that, I have a lot of good memories. And growing up was basically being the youngest in the house, uh, always getting in trouble, um, always trying to follow my brothers wherever they go. Um, you know, when it's raining outside, you run, you run outside, you you know, it's kind of like showering in the rain, right? Um, like butt naked. Yeah, pretty much. That's, and and, you, and we think it's normal, right? When we're in Vietnam, right? Looking back, it's kind of funny. Uh, and then there are things like that you dread, you know, going to martial art training. You, you, you're like, oh, why do I have to go? All right. And then you sit uh, on the motorcycle and my dad would take us there. Um, and things just like simple things in life. For example, uh, after training, my dad would take me across the street to um, the stall where they would sell soda and uh, soybean drinks in Vietnam at the time, they would basically open up a can of, let's say soda, or let's say a can of soybean, and they only pour you half of it into a plastic bag. So they can save the other half to sell to other customers to save money. Um, but the bag would be wrapped in a rubber band, the straw. That's just a classic like memory for me because 
that was my youth getting that bag of soybean milk or a bag of soda right after training and then other things like um you know my grandpa would always take me to school or if he'll kind of take care of me while my family is gone so i have a very good connection with him while he was alive uh things like he said hey if you're good today i'll give you one piece of simui candy right that he had boxed up in this little box um, in the cabinet so things like that it's what I remember of it, above, above it now. A lot of family experiences and just um, a lot of me trying to follow my brothers around. Why did your dad take you to Taekwondo? What inspired him to push you and your brothers, I assume? Right. All going yeah, yeah. Um, all of us, actually. Yeah, my brother started first. Um, I don't know why to this day he decided to take my brothers to Taekwondo to begin with, but I know why he took me because I think once my brothers uh, received their black belts in Vietnam. Uh, my dad definitely wanted me to also pursue a same path, maybe be like them or um, just do something other than just being at home as the third child. So that's how it started. My brother started at first, then he eventually decided to en enroll me into training. But man, I, I never liked it. It was just one of those things where, you know, you're a kid, you just, and you gotta wear a uniform. You know, like when you're a kid, I just wanna wear my shorts, my t-shirt and run around in circles and have fun with my friends. But yeah, um, it was not something that I liked at the point. I was very young. Um, and there was a point where before we left the United States, he said, hey, let's take a picture of you training. And man, it was, I hated that day. It was so hot. Uh, and he took a camera out and he had me do a lot of kicks with the master and I just couldn't get it right. And I remember in my head, like, man, it was so hot. Like, dad, I'm not getting this right. Can I just go home and get my soybean, you know, milk and, and call it a day? Uh, but after many iterations, there was one picture till this day that we have. Um, and I'm thankful for that picture because that's the only picture that I have where I can remember that through my dad's lens, through his view, this is what he saw of me as a five-year-old. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, of, of how I started and what my last memory of training in Vietnam was. It's interesting what you said about how he saw you through his lens, right? Right. Um, and I've taken thousands of pictures of my kids and <laughs> seeing them seeing their image through the lens one time the the time when you shoot the, the 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 picture is one thing but then living with that digital uh shot over and over and over because i watch look at pictures all the time when i'm waiting for something i'm at the bank or at the grocery i look at the pictures and i scroll through and the kids don't realize this but and i'm telling you long you as a kid uh were go was going through a very tough time when you were, your dad was taking the shot but yeah, yeah. but as a as a father i'm constantly revisiting the pictures you know my child um and i'm constantly being moved by how amazing there's these like little humans that are just right. walking around and and they have their own way of looking at life and they don't and they're everything's so new to them and when they're five years old four years old there's just so much wonderment and you can see the frustration in them when they don't want to take the picture so <laughs> yeah. I, I you know no i that's exactly what i was going through in my mind is i don't want to take this picture but yeah. i'm glad that it happened and i think you know and can please continue to do that with your kids it's they'll realize it someday because um, for me, there's a lot of regret, right? Once my dad passed away, 
uh, uh, I was 10 at the time. And ever since then, there's nothing left that I have yeah. from him other than pictures before I was 10, right? Um, I can hold on to certain things like there's a, an alarm clock that he first bought coming to America. And it's like a 1994 Sony alarm clock. Until this day, I have it in my room and I use it on certain occasion where if I'm going to an interview or if I have a important uh, meeting with somebody, I always use that alarm to wake me up, to remind me, hey, dad's telling you to get up, don't sleep in, don't get lazy, right? So small things like that, small things like the picture that you're taking for your kids. Um, I think pictures are the, the best way because those last a lifetime, right? So yeah, no, please keep doing it. Uh, now I look back on that pictures. I'm just so glad my yeah. dad took those, any of those pictures back then when I was a kid. Long, did your father pass away quickly or was it like some illness, if you don't mind me asking? No, it was actually very sudden. Um, and then that's the unfortunate part because it was so sudden and um, I saw it firsthand. Uh, I think my brothers saw it firsthand. My mom experienced it firsthand. So it all happened very sudden. We were not prepared for it. Um, it was very unfortunate for our family. Uh, if, do you mind uh, talking about it? I mean, like, was it a stroke that, that, that happened or? Yeah, um, he had a heart attack. Um, till this day, we don't know, you know, the condition behind it. But what we do know is that uh, my grandfather, uh, which is my own Ari, on my dad's side, he had also heart complications when he passed away back then in Vietnam. Um, so that's the only thing that can make us understand, or sorry, understand, but give us an idea of what led to a sudden heart attack or heart disease, you know, at this age, right? He was 53 at the time. So, so fairly dumb. young, yeah, fairly young for him. He only saw life halfway through. Um, and uh, because of that, we have no clue what was happening, right? And I was 10, you know, my brothers were in, in middle school and my oldest brother was in high school. And it was just an overwhelming experience. And till this day, I, I remember every bits and part of that night, uh, you know, it's like 3 a.m and you get this like alarm in your head, like something's going on, but you don't know what to do, you're a kid. Um, and you know, that, that trauma in my head still replays to this day if, if, I, if I think about it, um, but I'm not afraid of it. You know, it's not something I shy away from, but man, it's just, every time I think about it, 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 it hits me hard because had I knew something, had I knew CPR, had I knew how to do something, you know, what if, what if this, what if that, that could have changed the course of his um, chance of surviving the heart attack. Um, but yeah, it was one of those experiences where it just so quick, so, so quick. Yeah. I asked you because uh, I often wonder how death in our family affects the way our trajectory, our life trajectory, you know, goes right. right. There's like one degree off on something will bring your life in a totally different it'll spin it off in a completely different trajectory and sometimes i feel like the way our parents die or you know if it's a slow death like cancer you have a, more time to prepare heart attacks or strokes or just sometimes it's so sudden and it leaves you know the, right. the, the existing family I, I lost my father as well and I feel like, well, you know, I was a lot older than you, but when you're 10, it leaves this sort of remnant. I'm, I'm guessing that it leaves this remnant of uh, a trigger that brings you to such a life motion. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I think that's exactly how it was. Um, and it's looking back, I don't think I ever really thought about my childhood. I always thought about how do we overcome this as a family? 
how do we make sure my mom was okay? And how do we make sure that there's rice to eat uh, for dinner, right? Like that was my thought back then when I was 10, because I remember both my mom and dad did not have a job at the time. They were laid off um, uh, because their company moved to Mexico. So they were laid off during that summer. And while we were trying to recover from all of that, um, and you know, we're, this is five years after we moved to the US. We're still in a small apartment. My dad eventually got a job uh, as a custodian uh, within my school district. So I was, as a kid, all thinking, oh, wow, I might get to go to school with my dad someday. You know, like that was the, the excitement, right? Wow. And then he was training for about a week or so, and then he had a heart attack and he passed away. And man, like, yeah, our life just, just upside down. You know, my mom's still laid off. Um, my, we're about to start school literally one week. And I remember like my, that one week kind of just changed everything. And it's not because I thought about it when I was a kid. It's more of just, you have to go through with it. You have to go through with waking up. You have school in six days. Where, where, where do you get supplies for school? Are you gonna have money to buy school supplies? Are you gonna be able to, to kind of, you know, be ready for school mentally, emotionally? And I remember that night, my mom came back from the hospital. She came right into the door and she went right um, into the bathroom. And I think that's when we all kind of realized that something has happened, but we're not sure exactly. And I was so hopeful that she would came out and say something, but she didn't. And then a family friend from our neighborhood apartment, he sat down and looked at us and told the three of us, you know, hey, like your dad's gone. Um, and holy you know, shit and you know life gotta have to go on you know and i think yeah. i think that's when i just looked at my brothers and i started crying and and i think from that moment on it's not about what do you do tomorrow it's more of what can you handle how can you handle tomorrow how can you handle the next day and if you repeat that long enough all of a sudden you're kind of ready for school mm -hmm. right seven wow. days later i was in school and yeah, and I was terrible in school. <laughs> that first two, three months, I was terrible. I was a big mess. My brother was a big mess in school too. And we all had our, our issues at school. Yeah. You know, I I think that, um, and I'm sorry to, to, to make this get emotional, but uh, yeah, it's just part of, of, of life. But I bring this up because it, it shapes you. It really does shape you. And I, I always say to my wife and, and my mom that I'm not afraid of dying and leaving the kids without a father. I'm never afraid of that. I'm always afraid of like me being weak and can't handle the marriage or in my own head, I'm thinking of, oh, yeah. if I ever abandon my children or have a divorce, I think those kinds of things are detrimental to your, your child or you become an alcoholic and you know, you really right. screw up. But when you, I think as a parent, when you die and especially when the kids are like, just holding up like a 10 year old it really leaves them in a different place it, it doesn't it doesn't hit them as hard i i guess because my my grandfather died when my dad was six months old he was a baby and his life and his older brothers took care of you know the whole family they became one became a doctor the other became like this big military guy and mm. they've all done very fairly well with their lives and their their kids my cousins all have done very well because they the the brothers like you had to four brothers and a sister yeah. had to really band together and take care of the, themselves right right and i think through that process yeah it's the overcoming of everything that's happening uh, i agree with you um and every you know every death can be different for different families um, I can speak on behalf of my family is that um, it changed our lives and it 
shaped us completely who we are today because everything I do today that requires yeah. me to kind of overcome something, the first person in my mind is my dad, right? And then if something is relevant, like let's say I was in school and I got a bad grade, I would call my mom immediately just to get off my chest. Like, hey mom, like I bombed this test just to tell her that. And this is a true story. Uh, I was in seventh grade and I basically got a C in like my geometry uh, class uh, in, in, in eighth grade or something like that. Seventh or eighth grade, one of those. And it was, I got the, the test back and then lunch happened and I so like, like feeling this anxiety inside, but I can't, no, I don't know what it is, but I think it's because I'm guilty because my mom works so hard, but yet I have a bad grade in school. So I, during the next class, it was my, my piano class. I asked the teacher, oh, can I call my mom? And I literally called my mom when she was at work. All right. And I called her, I said like, hey mom, I just got a bad score on my math test. And she goes, go, it's okay. Um, how you feel? You know, I'm telling her I'm very sad right now. And I'm not a studious person. I'm not like a 4.0 where I get a C and I go crazy. No, I was an average, like probably 3.0, 3.3 student back in middle school. It was just this one letter, just letter grade got me going. And I think that guilt inside me is what kind of, kind of drove me to kind of find success in my own way. Because, you know, my dad's gone, my mom's working swing shift and I'm in school not doing well. And I think that doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. I want to go back to uh, your younger years. Do you have any clue why your father picked Taekwondo and not Shaolin or not, uh, you know, mm. there's other martial arts in Vietnam. Right. Why, why Taekwondo? Uh, I think it's because it was the most popular sport at the time in Vietnam in terms of martial arts. Because uh, up until the 90s, there were a lot of uh, Korean masters that would come from Korea to Vietnam to start Taekwondo as a business. And then they would have demonstrations from Korea uh, uh, for the athletes in Vietnam. And then eventually Taekwondo became a sport that kids in Vietnam can enjoy, feeling empowered, right? It's a very simple sport to learn as a kid, but very hard to master when you're an adult. And in Vietnam, there is a community center called the Nha Rang Hoa Thiu Nhi, and it has all the sports. You know, it had badminton, uh, football, tennis, taekwondo, um, and a lot of other sports. And I think when my dad went to that facility, he realized, wow, this is a lot of, there's a lot of things going on. And taekwondo seems to be the one that kind of, I guess, attracted him because at the time, again, the sport was rising in Vietnam. Right. So I think he picked that because of that very reason. Got it. Got it. Um, and do you ever think about other um, martial arts as you're as, as you've been training in Taekwondo? Yeah, of course. Of course. I think um, when you do any martial arts long enough, let's say for me, I've been doing Taekwondo for so long. Eventually, you're going to have to come across. A, wow, look at that martial art or wow, look at that fight on UFC. And you, you start to reflect on your own sport, right? So that always is apparent for me. Even till now, I, I still think about other martial arts and, and, and what are their pros and cons and how can I learn from that as well? Yeah, but why did you choose to stick with Taekwondo and, and become so good at it? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, because of the way that the pathway is built for USA Taekwondo, right? 
for example, um, in USA, you you can make the national team. You can go compete at the World Championship. Um, you can compete at the Pan American Championship, and then you go through this feeling of like, wow, I'm representing my country, right? But because you have to go through a lot just to represent your country, you don't have time to pick another martial art. You don't have time to think or try another martial yeah. art, right? You have to kind of fine tune your technique because the moment you get sidetracked, your opponent can uh, beat you on the mat, right? So as a kid growing up, it's one, because my dad was the person who introduced us to the sport. We don't want to give it up. You know, we were thinking we have to continue this, if anything. We took a break after my dad passed away, but the, um, my older brothers and, and I, we just kind of thought about it. We really want to train again. And training has to be with the same sport because that's what my dad envisioned us to do. So for us, is deeply tied to my dad, right? And then eventually, as we grew older, it manifested into competitive martial arts. Now we have to compete in Taekwondo and represent the country. So our mind is always going to be Taekwondo, getting better at it. And um, if we do reflect with other martial arts, is how can we use a certain component of the martial art and then add it to our own training to make ourselves better in Taekwondo? Because like I said, um, it's so competitive now. And the moment you take your foot off the gas pedal, mm -hmm. uh, a new person emerges and they take your spot. Okay, so the three of you are growing up, your father passes away, you guys quit training for a little bit, then you get back on it, right? But I can imagine at the time there's three of you, mm -hmm. who's leading the charge to say, hey guys, let's go train. I mean, mm -hmm. and, it, and and I find it impossible that all three of you at all times are like, okay, gung-ho, let's, <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> go towards this vision. Who drove this machine and who was like designing like the pathway here? Who led it? Yeah, it's a good question. We all knew that we have an interest and we all loved it, right? Uh, but of course it costs money as well. And my, my mom was working swing shift from uh, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. every day uh, after my dad passed away. And it, I think it's one day it's somebody that talks about it, another day somebody talks about it. I was the youngest, I probably didn't say much. I just kind of like, yeah, you want to go? I want to go. And next day my oldest brother like, hey, I kind of want to train. Yeah, me too. You know, like I just want to be like them, right? I think it was my two older brothers that kind of, you know, thought it was a good idea. But I think eventually my mom was the person who made oh. the final decision like, hey, you guys go train again. I'll make it work. I'll, I'll find a way to, to pay for it, you know? And I think that started the conversation and slowly we got back into it. So I think it just took a while and it was one person to another, but then eventually my mom, you know, she's basically the boss of the house, right? If she says you have to go to train, you have to go train. And yeah, so I think it was her that kind of allowed us to think that it's possible again. And I, don't, I can't imagine everybody was like revving their engines going, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, redlining your engines to do Taekwondo, right? I, I can't imagine it's almost like going to church, like, oh, shit, yep. you got to like, you know, nobody's really wanting to get it. But at some point, all of this changes because you can't arrive where you are today without this collective change. Right. Uh, when did that sort of happen? Yeah, I think for a while it was like that. We were just dreading it. And we missed the sport, so we came back to it. But then we forget how boring it gets when you just do repetitive training, right? And at that level, we were very recreational. So it was just very, like, um, it was just very repetitive. It all changed when we started our own nonprofit team in 2004. We had a new, like, ambition. We have a new passion for the sport. We realized, wow, we just created something new. And now we're kind of the leaders of this small group. 
Okay, wait, I got to stop you right there. Yeah. In 2004, you started this thing, but whose idea was that? And how does it, like, what is that? Com you, you three are in school, you come home, and one day somebody's, like, cooking food at the stove, and it's like, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we open up our own? Like, how does that, how does this transpire? Yeah, yeah. yeah so actually, one thing led to another. Um, we were training with our local studio um, uh, nearby. It's called Vang Lang Martial Arts. When we, when my oldest brother uh, and my middle brother were going to college, um, their schedule got conflicted with the training schedule, and you know it's far away. It's a lot of things we have to figure out. So eventually, we had to basically stop going to our school, and we had to. My brother had to focus on college, and for me, I was entering high school. I was, I didn't think too much of it. But what happened was, after a month or two months of doing this, my brothers and I kind of missed training. But we couldn't go back to train because just the schedule is all weird and school is really far away for my brother. So eventually we started kicking in the garage, right? Mm -hmm. We just got into our garage, literally is two car garage. And at the time, like you can imagine, it's just cement. And we just took some old like vinyl that was left from the kitchen. We just put on the ground and the three of us were just taking our slippers, <laughs> kicking slippers as a paddle. And then we were doing that for a while and then we kind of liked it. It was kind of like, yeah, we're doing martial arts again and it's a lot of freedom and, you know, we're in the garage and so on. And then eventually more friends came to join us and then we're like, whoa, there's a lot of people now. And then more friends came to join us. And next thing you know, we had a full-fledged team of young teenagers from San Jose in our garage doing martial arts unofficially, right? Then we realized, okay, this is getting too big. We have to scale. And in order to scale, we have to basically put some structure into it give it a team name, who are the coaches, who are your captains, and what is our goal as a team, right? So that kind of manifested organically. We, it wasn't, to your point, we were just not cooking ramen, really, oh, hey, let's make a team. So that's how it slowly began and why the team started. And did you guys have like a mentor that, you know, that you're like, oh, that guy's like number one in the country, let's mm -hmm. recruit him to teach our uh, vadung or our dojo? Right, right. Uh, no, no mentor, it was just YouTube. We were exposed to YouTube at the time, and it was kind of like, look at all these different teams in the world that are out there. That was our first thought, right? And Taekwondo at the time was not streamlined as it is today, as a modern sport. At the time, it was more of just whatever you're good at, go post it on the, on, on the web, and someone will watch it. And for us, there was this team in Germany called Taepong, and they were a Taekwondo demonstration team. And they were a bunch of basically top-notch athletes who were uh, from Korea that moved to Germany and they started a team and they were just performing everywhere and they were posting the clips online and we would download these clips and rewatch it and like wow I want to be like that so in a way they're not our mentor but they were our kind of like symbol to follow right and that sparked everything and fun fact till this day we have contact with the founders of Taepong and they're in their 40s now with kids and they still comment and, and leave us you know very supportive messages like we post our recent trip to perform somewhere and they'll comment hey you know guys keep it up xyz and it just makes me feel so happy inside because these were the guys that we looked up to they were our celebrity in taekwondo wow. in 2004 yeah okay but you see videos right right but who's making these micro adjustments to be like the kick is not smooth mm. or, or you know the right, right. power here or adjust your hips there how do you know how to reach that level by just looking at a video like the three of you 
I think that's just the way we were built. I don't know, like our eyes were just very keen on small things. You pause a clip. But if I were to rewind a little bit, I think it's because of our hunger, because we were hungry to get better. We were hungry to do a different kick. We were hungry to land a kick or to kind of like unlock a new level of being a martial artist, right? And in order to do that, we had nothing but YouTube because at the same time, we were still somewhat not, you know, stable. You know, my mom was still working her swing shift. My brother's still in college. We don't, we didn't have any money, right? So we got to think about what's free, what's available to us without asking my mom to support us. And YouTube was the way to go. And man, that space bar was our best friend because you, you hit that space bar, it just pauses everything and you scan and you rewind, you space bar again. Then you start to realize that's how it was. Um, and I, I think that's how simple it was for us. Just YouTube, watching videos, just pausing, look at that kick, look at our kick, compare the two, it doesn't look correct. And we didn't even know if what we're watching is correct, <laughs> right? We just knew that we wanted to be like them or somebody that we're seeing on YouTube. And the only way to get there is you have to make yourself look like them, whether it's a takeoff, whether it's the way they move their hips to the side. And like I said, I don't know if that's correct, but at the time it was the only thing we knew of. Right? Okay. I'm going to have to get into a micro description here because uh, when I'm thinking about like a kick, I just think like, uh, you know, you just hold out a, a pad and somebody kicks. Right. What What is so inspiring about something that basic? Or was there like another real level that you're like, holy shit, that is like some next level mm -hmm. shit. Can you describe that one thing that made this German team uh, inspiring that you're like, uh, okay, that's like, that's the next level shit. We right. need to adopt it and we got to study it. Like, because otherwise I'm like thinking guys in a garage kicking a bag. <laughs> I mean, what right. is so special about that coming out of Germany? I think it is the style that that team was showcasing, right? Their style, that swagger. Bottom line, you watch them and they're performing on the biggest stage in Germany. Like at the time, there were a lot of big martial arts event in Europe and they were there, right? Um, we followed them to the point where we knew the member's name. We, we, we were fixated on who they were, what they, what uniform, how short the belts were, you know, how long the uniform, you, you, we wanted to be like them, right? And we don't, we don't know why, but it was just one of those things where like they were the celebrities and we were chasing after them. Um, and it's just, for example, we do, let's say a hook kick. We hit the paddle, cool. But when they do a hook kick, they look fantastic doing it. They reverse their arms, you know, their head locks in. And then when they do their pose after, lights are shining on them and the audience is clapping. And I'm like, but that's just a basic hook kick. How could they make it look so awesome? But if you look at that and other kicks and other kicks and other kicks, it's like everything they do was awesome. So for us, it was like, we can do all of that, but it wasn't awesome. So we have to reflect and, and kind of ask ourselves, how do we make it awesome? And you know what? Maybe it was just small little things. Maybe it is the uniform. Maybe it is the belt. Maybe it's the style when they do the pose after. Let's try everything. We just try everything. We don't know what was right. We just tried everything. Yeah. Fascinating. And, but was there one guy who was like, they're so like, they're one guy who was there, like the choreographer yeah. or team captain yeah. did all that. Yeah. One of their coaches, his name is uh, Jang Ho Kim. Um, he was always the main guy in all the videos. You, you kind of see it. Right. And he's at the time he was a team captain and he was basically the leader of the team and you can kind of feel it in the videos and also um when you watch him you kind of think about that precision 
because they were doing self-defense scenes. They were doing Apple kicking off the sword. They were doing everything that the Korean team was doing in Korea. But the difference is they were doing it with a modern style, right? They weren't just getting boards out and then kicking it and then do forms and walk in. Yeah, when you watch you know, when you're watching this team perform, they weren't just kicking boards and doing forms and then going in and calling it a day. It was like they came out, they looked really cool, and then they were kicking apples off sword. They were doing bricks breaking, they were doing boards breaking, but they were using techniques that have never been seen before, right? They took a taekwondo kick and they made it into a um, kind of like a movie where when you're watching a movie, it's like you're watching a movie and then they do something, and you're like, wow, that's amazing, right? It's unexpected. So the element of unexpected really made us feel like, how can we make it like that? Because if we don't, we're just going to be doing the same kick and it's going to look the same every day, right? Um, and yeah, so we were comparing them with the Korean national team. And we like both. We like both teams. We, we, we like the Korean national team and we like this Germany team. But there was something about the Germany team that really made us felt like they were the underdog. They were a bunch of people coming together, guys and girls, just, and you can tell that they were not an official national team. They were just a, lo uh, a local team, but they got themselves national recognition from the, from the, Europe, uh, from the European Martial Arts Committee. Um, that kind of relates to us because we're not on the national team at the time. We're just local athletes. I think that's the connection that we had. And no matter what they did, we, we had to do it. That was the kind of mindset we had back then. Wow, it's an incredible story. Now, we're talking about structure here. Can you go into a little bit or a lot of the way that the taekwondo world is organized yeah yeah um structure wise i'll break it to two parts right the the, the organization and then the um the ethics and kind of like the the moral side of martial arts so at the very top you have the world taekwondo um uh, group they basically manage everything across the world they take care of all the olympic rules they make sure that um, everything that is new is being uh, passed down through seminars or through uh, events. Um, and then you have countries that have their own uh, group. So for example, in USA, we have USA Taekwondo. In Vietnam, you have the Vietnam Taekwondo Federation. In Korea, you have the Korean Taekwondo Association. So all of these um, uh, groups within the countries, they also have membership with the World Taekwondo. Right. And then you kind of funnel into that. And then within your own country, you might have states and cities. So in the United States, you have, you know, all the states. So for example, I live in California. So California has its own group called the uh, California um, Taekwondo Federation, for example. Right. Um, and in this case, I would have to be a member of California in order to do something with the United States. Right. So there's always a, a layer that you go through and from referee training to rule updates to seminars to events, tournaments, everything trickles down from the top at the world technical level and it goes all the way down uh, to where you live. Did you know any of this that your brothers and you know any of this when you were starting out or was that even around? It was around. We were only aware of the two levels, which, which is the World Taekwondo level and then the United States Taekwondo level, right? Um, we were we were only aware of those two. 
And we were also focused on the second piece that I was telling you about is the moral side, the ethics side, right? Like, for example, um, when you greet somebody in martial arts, how do you greet the person? When you are talking to somebody older or someone younger, how would you greet them or how would you say something to them? Um, so that's a different side of it. So we were more focused on that because we were restructuring our team. We were growing. We want to make sure that we have uh, kind of like the right playbook in place so that our athletes can follow when you see your coach. Attention, you bow and you say, hello, sir, right? When you shake hands, you got to um, put one hand under and kind of sh you know shake the other person's hand so we were focusing on that piece at the time in 2004 and then eventually went to korea and then our um mind was blown because we learned so much in korea from techniques and from the martial arts side of just being a martial artist and then from there we restructured our team again when we got back um and then fast forward to now we're on you know agt uh doing this on the on a big stage Okay, you skip like a million steps in between there. <laughs> and I so I'm about to ask you, how did you get why did you go to Korea? Yeah, we went to Korea because um, our team was invited to perform at this event called the International Taekwondo Festival in Southern California. And at that event, there were a lot of Korean masters, but we were still fairly new. We we didn't have like a a presence in the community just yet. But after we performed, I think um, we wowed everybody, you know, I think we were just lucky enough to have the right people watch us because one of the person who was watching us, he was the president of the um, California United Taekwondo Association. He was the president of basically California for Taekwondo. And he walked up and said, you know, hey, I want to work with you guys. Who's your who's your coach? Who's your master? Uh, and that's when, you know, my uh, my middle brother, uh, you know, we, people call him Coach Hui. Coach Hui steps up and he's like, oh, I'm the, the coach, sir. And they start talking. And then next thing you know it, he wanted to basically sponsor our team to go to Korea to train for a 10-day trip with his athletes that he has. So basically, they took us who represented California and he took other athletes who represent California, um, went to Korea, and we only had to pay for our airfare. But once we got there for 10 days, everything was taken care of from lodging to meals to training everything you can think of that 10 days was a life changing experience because we saw wow. this sport in a different light. It was, it, was, it was just amazing. So yeah, so that's how we kind of started this next level of training. No longer just a small garage kicking paddles for fun. Now we're thinking, how do we get better? How do we travel to another country? And then when you get there, you have to adapt. And quickly we realized that we're so far behind in many ways, whether it's technique or just even our discipline. Why, why is it that you get to Korea and you felt differently about the sport? I mean, it's just a bunch of guys kicking bags, right? Or is it different than what you kind of witnessed yeah. here? Um, to simply summarize it, for us, it was literally a bunch of athletes just getting better, kicking pads and just flipping around. You go to Korea, it is a way of life, like straight up a way of life. They do everything as if... You know they wake up and breathe the sport and one example i always talk about is we were training with them in the morning and it was lunchtime. and while we went to lunch um they had the athletes had to go back to their school so we were training at a university so they're training with us in the morning we go to lunch and then some of them went with us to eat we would change into our like t-shirts and shorts but they would actually wear the uniform to the cafeteria and in our mind we're thinking oh okay they're probably lazy they want to change 
And after we ate lunch, they said, okay, I have to go to class and I'll see you in evening training. And I was like, wait, you're going to wear your uniform to class? He said, yeah, it's normal. This is what we do. And I was like, wait, wouldn't that be weird if people saw you in your you know, uniform and a belt in like computer science class, for example? And he said, no. He said, our major is Taekwondo. We major in this sport at our school. So it's very normal. <laughs> and I'm like thinking, major in Taekwondo? Like, what do you, you know, like I start to think about what is going on. So then again, another like level unlocked in terms of knowledge. Now I'm like, this is the whole new world to me because I didn't know this existed at the time. And then you realize it, it's embedded in their way of life because they study this sport, they practice this sport. And even when they go eat and they sit in class, they're running around in the uniform. So can you imagine the uniform is all white? They don't want to get it dirty. So the entire day from morning to night, whatever they're doing, they're thinking about keeping my uniform clean. Like that itself, like that itself is a way of life. It's a discipline, yeah. That yeah, itself is a life. discipline. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's very, very, you know, interesting. But it was, I had so much respect for my friend at the time. And ever since then, we try to learn what we could. Obviously, in life in the United States, it's a little bit different. If you wear your uniform and walk around the streets, you get questioned and you get challenged. But in Korea, it's the way of life. You go to, they go grocery shopping <laughs> in their uniform because they'll train and they'll run to like a grocery, uh, uh, like a grocery uh -huh. store to buy something and they're in the uniform and it's normal. No one says anything. No one looks at them weird. It's a very normal thing because Taekwondo is actually their national sport. So it's a very normal thing for them. But for us, it was a life-changing experience. I wonder how many other countries take take their national sport to that level yeah i i, I don't know you right know, like, i mean or any other country that takes their martial arts to that level yeah i i actually I don't know i know you know in china you know kung fu and wushu you you hear and you see stories of them training a temple for years and they live there so you can kind of imagine that, that the highest level of training um in korea i witnessed it you know firsthand and um now it's normal now i want to talk about it. it's very normal like yeah that that's that's what it is and if i go to korea today i'm expected to follow that same path right if i'm training with them i don't think about changing my uniform after go eat i think about hey where are you going if you're going right now okay i'll go with you right it's and kind no of change uh, of normal. clothes no you just wear where you wear and if and if they say hey we're eating dinner with the masters tonight um you know do not touch your chopstick do not drink or eat until they eat first Right. It's a very normal thing. So our first time in Korea with uh, the masters is basically a big dinner, you know, like 30, 40 people. And you see a lot of American athletes, they just start taking their stuff like they're eating, you know, and it's funny because we felt a different presence. Like some of us felt like something is not normal here. So we just observed, but some of the American athletes are a little bit younger. So they didn't know they start eating. And then all of a sudden you see our friend come over, like he rushed over, looked like he was anxious and scared. He's like, don't touch, don't touch, you know? And then all of a sudden we just kind of like, you know, everyone backed off and stood there and wait. And then the Korean master were joking with each other, laughing and talking. We're just sitting still, not doing a single thing. Once they started picking up their chopsticks to eat or their, you know, and drinking, then we were allowed to eat. Wow. So that, that level of respect, the seniority is definitely very, you know, apparent every day in their lives. Okay. Now that's us for one day with them. Can you imagine them? like that with their coach every day. If their coach took them out to lunch or to dinner or whatever it is, that's the kind of protocol they have to follow. And it's not spoken. You just have to know it. It's very normal. Even today, still today, if I go to Korea and, and we meet, you know, older masters, it's very normal. Um, but the cool thing is we brought that back to the States actually. 
So our team now has a discipline. No matter where we go, no matter what we're doing, even if we're very relaxed, even if we're being fun with our team, the moment when food comes out, no one touches their food until the coaches and the masters touch their food, right? It's a way to show respect. Interesting. Yeah. And the Marine Corps is different. The privates eat before the officers. So the troops uh, have to eat first and then it works slowly up the chain. I see. Generals eat it's last. So the and I guess that each world has its own set of rules. It reminds me of a um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote um, in one of his books, uh, Outliers, and they were talking about this Korean phenomenon. So in the '90s, there was a, a series of plane crashes in Korea, and people <laughs> were trying to figure out why these planes were going down at an extraordinary ratio than and like you know you get one out of a million flights crashing in the general population throughout the world right but in korea it was much higher it was more like two planes went down you know in a matter of a, a year and they kept happening for a few years or the the frequency was much higher so they hired a team at mm. korean airlines I, I think or something to go in and check why this was happening and it all had to do with the ranking system inside the cockpit. So if you were like a captain, oh, if you were a captain, the way you communicated uh, to your juniors were, uh, you know, you know, shit rose downhill. Respect from, you know, the, the new pilot has to be up. That millisecond of the younger pilots having to address in a respectful way, mm -hmm. um, I'll give you a, a very crude example. Hey, there's a mountain in 500 yards. They couldn't tell their captain that they the captain was like on course to like crash. So in that amount of time of saying, uh, you know, using all of the the words of respect, they were losing micro milliseconds and it was causing these planes wow. to crash. So what they had to do. I can see that. Yeah, yeah I mean, I. I'm hearing it now for the first time in the martial arts world, but I remember this story reading right. it uh, in, in Outliers when I was reading it. So they had to, the way to remedy this was to change it all to English. So they had to learn, you know, pilots have to go through English training. So you throw out the, you know, in Vietnamese we say, back or chu or gao or, you know, all of these right. or am, throw all that shit out the window. Now it's you and me. Yeah. We go, you and me, sir, there's like, or approaching a mountain we're gonna crash and it was very you know right. you throw all that out the window mm. because it's uh yeah. gets in the way but but for something like yeah. time ago yeah. i can imagine the structure lends itself to uh to higher performance um training perhaps yeah yeah for sure for sure because also when you're training you you, you don't always you don't always think about yourself sometimes sometimes in training you start thinking about <clears throat> You know, like, for example, if I'm doing well, but my teammate is not doing well, then we have failed, right? Because the coach is training the team, but if the team is not successful at the end of the day, then the coach is not successful, right? So as athletes, sometimes we feel like, hey, we have to be better as a team as well, because our coach is training the team so hard. So, so that's why the universities, when we're training in Korea, 
you always sense a sense of teamwork first. Mm. You don't know who the superstar is. Like you, it's clearly a person that's the best, and it's clearly a group of athletes that are the best, but they never show it at least through their emotions, through their 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 um, you know, they don't show it. When they train, you see it. But the, all of a sudden, when it's a team-related routine or a sequence, you can clearly tell they're scrambling to make everyone better, right? Those those uh, top those top athletes, and I think it's because they don't want their coach to feel that the coach did not do a good job training the wow. team. So no one's in it for themselves. So just watching that and learning that from them, um, and that's the teamwork. So we took back the discipline, we took back the teamwork, um, and then we took back the way of life to the best of our knowledge. And we brought it back from Korea to here. And it's interesting, you, you talked about in the Marines, it's the reverse when you eat dinner or in a meal. Um, same thing with Boy Scouts. Uh, I've been in Boy Scouts for so long, right? And in Boy Scouts, it's, I think Boy Scouts have a very similar, um, I guess, values as the military, the Marine Corps and so on, because in scouting, same thing. The young eat first, the elders eat later, right? Mm -hmm. But here's reverse in martial arts. It's, in, in our world, in Taekwondo is the other way around. So even myself, I was uh, in scouting for the longest time. So my world got reversed when I went to Korea, right? So yeah, definitely a learning experience. Uh, it was definitely one of those things where you just kind of mind blown and you take back what you can that you think works for your team and you kind of implement it and you just kind of reflect and repeat. Hmm. I, I have a very random question. Uh, all the guys that uh, show up to college uh, and majoring in Taekwondo, do they arrive with a black belt or do they arrive like completely or, or there's all kinds of different levels that they arrive at? No. So the major in Taekwondo is just like a nursing major or a doctor. Or, you know, for example, when you study to be a doctor, you have to have certain prerequisites, right? You have to be a black belt. You have to have some sort of national title on your under your belt. Um, you have to win some events that were recent. You have to have enough ranking according to oh, their so you're not just walking off the, no. on a team and just mm -hmm. being like i want to learn that i want to study that professionally i don't know like i'll give an example or that's easy to understand like uh nursing program in in california you have to kind of uh apply once you're in the school like let's say you're going to college you have to apply still to be a part of the nursing program they check your gpa they check your your hours at the hospital they, they, they look at different things right so over there same thing when you apply they actually look at your letter of recommendation. They look at your past results in competition, what you're good oh. at, right? And sometimes you apply for, let's say, to be on the sparring team for the university. They might say you're not good enough, but hey, you can be on the general team, right? You know, and sometimes you gotta take it and work your way up. Like I had a friend um, um, on America's Got Talent. He uh, applied to be on the forms team as part of the major for this school, for the for the university, they rejected him. And, oh, but hey, how about you join the demonstration team instead? And at the time, demonstration is a bit lower when it comes to forms and sparring. Forms and sparring is very popular in Korea, so they're at the top too. So my friend was kind of sad, but he said he's glad he's glad that it happened because look at him now, <laughs> he's performing on America's Got Talent through demonstration, right? So. It's interesting how life works for him, but uh, just to give you an idea of how they rank, you know, the certain discipline and you have to apply and there's trials. They have, they call it um, uh, exam day where all the high school students show up to that university that they wanted to apply for. And you're given a little number and you just do a bunch of drills for the whole day and you have proctors just looking at the numbers and you're just a number. They say, our right, number six looks good today. Oh, number five, um, stamina is terrible. He's off, you know? 
and that's how they filter the group. And then after a week of, of doing this, um, then they, they kind of like college interest exam. Here's the people who made it to the college. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, do you uh, cross train in other sports um, in, in, in your training? Um, recently, no. Um, in the past, maybe yes. In the past, we cross trained with Vovinam. Uh, we have a lot of good Vovinam friends that are in the Bay Area. Um, back then, we did. But ever since the pathway for United States Taekwondo to kind of funnel through the World Championship, uh, it's, training is becoming more demanding and more crucial for us. So we don't have the freedom to, to invest in a different type of sport just for a day or two. It's very hard because it's all about being perfect, but perfect is kind of impossible, right? It's hard to be perfect. So to perfect a technique, you have to just be so focused in your discipline. Right, 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 right. Right. So it's hard for us to cross train, but yet in the past we have cross trained Bobby Nam. Um, but nowadays it's very common for a team to cross train with other teams. So it might not be a different sport or different martial arts, but we do cross train with different martial arts team. And especially during this pandemic, um, it's very interesting. You cannot cross train physically. So what do we do? We get our friends from Korea and we cross train with them virtually through Zoom. And it's actually really cool. God, wow. Right? It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually a very common thing during the pandemic. Everybody, everybody was doing this. Uh, for us, we cross trained with our friends in Canada, right? That was really cool, right? And then we cross trained with our friends from Malaysia, our friends from Korea. Um, before oh. the pandemic, though, before the pandemic, you can imagine that we would host a seminar where people would fly in from different parts of the countries to train with us. Right. But that got taken away. So now we move to Zoom and doing everything virtually. Uh, OK, you move to Zoom, but is it like a, a separate camera and a big screen TV inside of the training area? Or is it like a little iPad that's put on a stand? How does it work? How do you cross train it, virtually? It, so it, it's hard because you have to remember when the pandemic hit, we too cannot be together. Right. Like, for example, myself and my athletes, we can't be in the same room. So we can't set up a big TV and then have 30 of us watch the TV and then have the, our friends in Korea teach us. So it was basically our friends in Korea and then all of us are in our own little like training space. So it's like 30, 40 screens, you know, um, and we're learning from one person and you get better at it. You, 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 start, you start to have people that can administer the entire event, right? For example, playing music when they're warming up, right? And when they're talking, lower the music a little bit. And when the instructor from Korea, let's say, wants to talk about one of the athletes in the United States, we would have to highlight the athlete so that the person who's training, you feel like you're not just watching a square. It's an experience. It's an enhancement of this is what we can do during the pandemic. So we got creative, man. We got really creative. But, okay. So fun. then everybody's in their own garage, right? Let's say. Yeah, and, yeah. And then and then you, you put an iPad or whatever on a stand. Mm -hmm. And then you're in your training uniform and you're just doing it, carrying it out yep. in your space. Yep. And everyone at home is, and everyone at home is seeing that. Wow. Right. And people get creative. They'll use their DSLR cameras and they'll hook it to the laptop for better quality and yep. they'll angle it. Right. Um, we went a bit further. We had two or three devices actually. So for example, we had two to three cameras, front view, back view, side view. Right. And we would highlight all that. So when we're teaching, everyone sees those three views. Wow. Right. You kind of get creative. 
Yeah. And but but people are also in their uniform and they're training too, right? Yes. They're like standing or in position and yep. wow. We, we expect them to follow the same discipline as if you were to be in class, right? You we have to see your your feet to your head. Nothing is cut off, right? When we see in in Taekwondo when we ask a question in person, how are you or say are you feeling good today? The athlete says yes sir, right? They respond to you yes followed by, you know, sir or ma'am. However, if you're on Zoom, if you have 30, 40 people screaming, yes, sir, the audio is, you know, it's going to be saturated. So what do we do? We mute everybody, but we replace it with thumbs up. So if you're standing from far away and I ask a question, you know, Unken, how are you feeling today? You know, please do this. So that's their way to show respect that I am responding to you and I'm not being muted by technology. So removing that technology um, gap, but to fulfill the need of technology was a very hard thing to balance. But everybody got good at it. And it's not just us. Everyone around the world oh, doing wow. Taekwondo, they were just picking it up. Then you have tournaments running online, right? So you can imagine like what's going on, what are the complications, the complexity. Uh, to quickly describe it, they will host an event online and there's two ways to do it. Live where like this, you and I would talk. In this case, instead of talking, I will show you my form. And then there's five referees and they'll judge you on the spot and they will screen share they will screen share the software that does the point calculation, right? And then they will put this on YouTube live to stream it to the world. So the world seeing this Shit. event, being judged. Yeah, it was crazy. It's, I love how technology bridged our sport together, even during the pandemic, right? So that's the live stream one. Then the other one is where you submit videos beforehand, right? There are rules, you follow it, you submit it to them. And then they take those videos and they produce it. And then they basically premiere it on, on YouTube so that we can all watch it together. You comment, you know, and people start sharing this. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic really never affected our training or our, our, our competition. All right, let's get into the America's Got Talent. Let's get to the juicy part. Yeah, yeah. How did your team get selected uh, for the participation of this uh, show? Yeah, so World Taekwondo reached out and they just simply asked, you know, hey, we're participating in um, ATT, uh, but we want, you know, the uh, we want your athletes to, to also be a part of this uh, to represent the United States, right? And I think that's how it started. Um, as simple as it sounds, I was excited. Like, I was wait, but then why? There's there's teams across the United States. Why your team? Or did um, they go out? and asked many teams and then they just whittled onto your team. Yeah, so definitely not, um, it's not a process of elimination. I think um, the World Taekwondo recognized that our team uh, maybe have, uh, you know, a lot of experience in demonstration because in the past, our team started off doing a lot of demos, right? I was telling you like we have friends coming to the garage mm -hmm. and we were unstructured at the time. So we did a lot of performances. We just went to different high schools, um, you know, like those uh, Vietnamese student association fashion shows for like colleges and high school. We were doing all of those back then. And then eventually we started performing on bigger stages, right? So in Taekwondo, before a tournament starts, they usually have an opening ceremony. So our team was getting invited to mm -hmm. perform at these events. Eventually we started putting this on YouTube. So on YouTube, we have a pretty good following as well. So I think that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. And within the sport, Taekwondo for our discipline on the national team, we have a lot of athletes uh, who were um, able to succeed 
in the discipline called freestyle. Freestyle is basically a way to express your form uh, through your own creation with some minimal rules, right? And because if you take that and you take our past demo experience, I think we were the best fit for what they're looking for. Um, to this day, I cannot ask that question. I can't ask, why did you select it? It's, it's one of those unwritten rules in martial arts. You just gotta go, oh, you need us? Yes, sir, um, we will be there. That's, that's all you can do, right? And then when I got to AGT, when we're training with, the, with them in the bubble, all the Korean athletes were like, man, long, we love M-Team. We saw your videos when we were like in high school and middle school. And I'm like, two, two things. One, I felt old, right? One, I felt old. And then two, um, I felt that, um, wow, they knew who we were. That is incredible. Right? So, so yeah, so, so then I kind of put together like, wow, maybe they do know about us, right? But yeah, that's how it all unfolded. Yeah, it's hard for me to, to interpret as I'm sitting here how popular your team is internationally or without having any background in Taekwondo, knowing sort of, and you're very humble in the way you come across. So I can't really understand that <laughs> you get a call from Korea. Hey, we want you to be part of our team with uh, America's Got. So it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compete, uh, compete because yeah, yeah. I can't understand like the space, right? <laughs> like, I don't know where you rank in the space, but now I'm, right. I'm hearing it. I'm like, you must be like the best. Your team has to be the best in the country for the motherland of Korea to call <laughs> into a satellite, right? I yeah, I and and I think I understand where you're coming from, and I think just just us being humble as part of who we are as martial artists. Um, I would feel really awkward to say that we're the best, and I don't, I don't think we're the best, right? I I honestly think there are a lot of great teams and great athletes in the United States, but I think sometimes you know when you're lucky and you're fortunate, things just happen the way they, they happen. Um, and also, you're not just being selected for your skills, right? This is one thing that people don't realize when they watch AGT. Working with the Korean national team from Korea, there's a lot of different things you have to be aware of. Yeah. One, can you work with them? Can you communicate with them? Can you help them with visas? Can you um, help them translate? Can you help them understand the culture of AGT, right? And I remember the first, two, three weeks of working with them, there were so many intricacy to work with the Korean team. My value was immediately added on the first two, three emails because there was miscommunication and I and knew it immediately. The time zone is different. AGT has no idea what martial arts is. And they just think, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Where the Korean team, they're like, they're following a protocol, right? And I'm here, I, I understand both worlds because I'm one, an athlete of martial arts and two, I live in America. so. I would ex help explain to our producer, like, this is not how it is over there. And I would tell our friends and crew, hey, in America, this is what they expect, right? So it's not just about the skill set. So I think for yeah. them to select us, I think it's, it comes with the experience. They realize that our team has maybe performed at multiple events. And also we've been, we've been very successful at, um, you know, the world championships. Our athletes does well, our team does well. Um, you know, my brothers and I, were also coaches of, uh, we're part of the coaching staff on the uh, national team for USA. So I think we have some sort of reputation, but I wouldn't say we're the best. I Got just it. think that they just needed a little bit of everything. And we were able to kind of fill in those gaps. And I still think it's time, timing of everything. And we're also very lucky to be selected. Yeah. But it also sounds like you have connect connective tissue uh, to yeah. Korea that, you know, that's invaluable if you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, um, uh, I'm, I can't say I'm good friends with this person because that's, that would be disrespectful in our, 
in our sport, um, I would say I have a very good relationship uh, with the uh, World Taekwondo Secretary General. Um, his name is uh, Mr. Haas, right? He, he works with WT, um, but he does not train right now. He's basically part of the, uh, the administration who, who oversees World Taekwondo as a global group. And he works with me closely nowadays to organize, you know, um, logistics for AGT, right? If something doesn't go well or something goes well, and he wants me to say, for example, say, hey, Long, um, the Korean team uh, need this for tomorrow's training. Can you work with your local network to get them what they need, for example? Because they're in America, right? They don't have resources. Yeah. But I might know where to pick up the equipment. I might know, you know, which brand is the best for this equipment, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that. So yes, when we, when you ask the question of how we select, it's not just the skill set. It's I think it's everything. Total package. Yeah, it's a yeah. total package to get this thing going and getting it to succeed on the main stage. Yeah, and um, on on in terms of like the scheduling and the way uh, the training broke down is breaking down um, for the amount of time that you're here and what leads up to the show. Can you kind of go into that? Yeah, so um, we worked together through Zoom first for the first two months um, via emails first and then Zoom meetings. And the meetings were basically myself, the Secretary General, Mr. Haas, and then you have the World Taekwondo head coaches. So we would meet uh, every now and then on Zoom, talk about the strategy, talk about uh, what kind of performance, kind of music, where we're we going for, right? And then they will send us videos to learn. So every week I had to share videos from the Korea team with my athletes here in the United States. And we would record ourselves and then resend it back to green team, right? They give us feedback and then same thing, just repeat the process until we feel comfortable with it, until they think it's okay. Um, and then for them, they have to quarantine in um, their hotel for 10 days because that's the, the law at the time for people arriving in California. So they were there for 10 days. Imagine they can't leave their hotel room. Food was being brought to their rooms. Wow. And um, they were telling me horror stories. They were basically eating turkey sandwiches every day. <laughs> Uh, with chips, you know, um, and, you know, these are Asians in America. They still want some sort of Asian food, you know, eventually, right? So anyways, um, you hear that story. And then when I arrived, um, we were quarantined for three days and we were all vaccinated, but they were not. Then we have our own little bubble and we had uh, four days to train with each other until the show. And training itself was not easy because um, I'm an, uh, uh, I work full-time yeah. And then my athletes work full time and then some of my athletes were in school. So we were basically working remotely on our laptop uh, in our hotel. Right. Um, so we were doing that from morning to evening. And then we would train from evening to night. So the Korean coach actually gave us that flexibility. And, and, and I'm so very grateful to him to this day because we were able to balance both. Right. Um, so, yeah. So that's what we kind of uh, put went through to get ready for the event and um that's yeah. kind of how it unfolded yeah you know with with the video stuff where you would record yourself and then you would shoot it back to them and then they would make critiques i mean what are they critiquing oh like hey you're too slow do it again <laughs> wow <laughs> or or like hey your kick's not high enough do it again <laughs> or like Oh, your rhythm is off for this. You know, this is what we want. Do it again. And it's not. And it's not like um, hard or anything. It's just time consuming. 
Um, and we want to make sure we fulfill their expectation because in this scenario, we are the ones that are kind of the bottom of the food chain, right? They, they, they are the top, they're the best of the best. We are not. So whatever we do, we, we always have to give them what they're looking for. And even if it's not our best, um, or even if it is the best, we always have to be ready to give them more the next day or the week after. Why, why did they need the American, the U.S. team? I think it's because for America's Got Talent, um, the producer uh, wanted to have American representation, right? And that way um, is not just bringing a team from Korea over and then put on the show, right? They really want to show that Taekwondo is united. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's it. um, kind of like um, a way for countries to kind of be together. So in this case, the World Taekwondo selected us from the United States and then <clears throat> merging with the Korean team. So this team consists of uh, USA athletes and Korean athletes. So then when you watch the show, it is a, a, a unification of both countries uh, competing on AGT. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so what's next for uh, the AGT competition for you, you all? You know, before we even get to that, what what is the significance of uh, what happened on the show uh, the first time? Um, man, that's a, uh, I'm thinking of a lot of things because personally, I have my own thoughts, and then for the sport, I have you know my own thoughts. I'll start with the sport. For our sport, it's such a big deal to be on this platform like our sport has been you know a um a a beacon of hope for a lot of our our young generation athletes to become better and to kind of you know take the sport to the next level and we're in the olympics you know we're on tv every now and then but nothing major like agt so for our sport to be featured on agt it was a huge deal Mm -hmm. because taekwondo we're always about kind of passing our sport and kind of like um transferring our our discipline and our knowledge to other people to kind of introduce them to the sport because it is a way of life. That is how the the sport was framed when it was created in Korea as a way of life. So to see this way of life on national TV in America on one of the biggest stage, it is a huge deal. Yeah, huge deal. Especially when Taekwondo is a traditional martial arts. Personally for me, it it was another life-changing experience because of the people that I met. The experience that we kind of gone through during the event and i talked about this in the previous vietnamese episode but one of my friend had basically the two metal sticks in his knee um he was basically a beast right and he was doing this backflip drill because the coach was not happy and he was hurt i i I know he was hurt because i myself too had knee surgery so i i know what our limits are but he never stopped you know the coach says i don't like that go do it again uh, you kick too slow, do it again. He never won even show a sign of sign that he's hurt. So after I talked to him, I'm like, hey, why did you just tell the coach you were hurt? No, 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 I, I can't do that. That's not the right way, you know, to go about it. And later on, I realized he had knee surgery two years ago and he has two metal sticks in his right knee, the same knee that he jumps off and lands on. That to me was another experience where I was like, you know what? I have so much to learn. I'm not even done learning. I, you know, it's, it's, I'm nobody. I'm not, you know, you start to think I'm not, I'm nothing. Like I thought I was cool with my, you know, ACL knee. I'm overcoming my own issues and my own troubles. Look, look at these guys. They're doing like things 10 times better, even if I'm healthy. 
you know so it's it's like humbling. A, it's a humbling experience a humbling experience so i personally to me that was one of the best thing i took back from the show uh, a lot of friends and family say hey you're on tv which is cool um but i can never forget the experience i i went yeah. through with the team during the time we were in the bubble you know you mentioned twice or three times now that uh the coaches say uh that kick was too slow if you keep doing that to somebody does that tire them out and you can't kick as fast you know, it's kind of like we we deal with it every day, actually, in training, right? Like even with my athletes, I would tell them to do it again, do it again, do it again. And eventually, they, they actually get it right, like, at the end of the day, surprisingly. It's the process of being mentally beaten down. But at some point, you pick yourself back up and you overcome that. I think that's what coaches look for, that, that one point, right? And I think if you coach long enough, you see it in athletes. So then it becomes a style of coaching. So you're never going to be happy with your first or two try. It's very rare an athlete does something on the first or second try and the coach goes, good job. <laughs> it's always going to be like that seventh or eighth try before they go, okay, you're good. I'll go. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what makes, you know, things good, right? The quality of these moves or the quality of what you're seeing on screen be so, you know, we can't, lay people can't really you know describe it but we right. can tell in our eyes that there's something magical and special happening here even small things like when they one of this in one of the scenes um some of the athletes were on the ground as part of the scene they have to act like they they kick and they fall on the ground and i remember during rehearsal one of the coordinators stopped their rehearsal and she started yelling at two of the guys on the ground in Korean. And when she was yelling, everyone just got up and just stood still and just waited for her to finish talking. Like everyone just still. And after she finished, they would bow to her and say, thank you. Kind of like saying, oh, thank you for the advice. And then when I talked to my friend, he said she wasn't happy because one of the, one of the guy's legs were bent in a wrong way on the ground, making it look like it's not real. And one of the other guy, you're, you're laying on the side when you're switching your back. And I'm like, there's eight guys on the ground. How do you know which you look for? Wow. And you know what? That level of perfection is what separates them and some of the rest of the world, right? That's why they're called the World Taekwondo Demonstration Team, right? They are literally the best of the world. And we're just fortunate to be a part of that group and to see it and learning it throughout the entire experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm often curious about talent versus hard work and, and practice. In your uh, experience, do you need to have the talent or do you need more to have the dedication, the grit to keep practicing? Which, which, which is more important to you? Personally, for me, and also the value of my own team, we think about dedication and loyalty, right? Because that formula takes you further and it lasts longer. In our experience, um, I can't say that's entirely true, um, but in, you know, the the 20 plus years of, of, of kind of training and then eventually running a team, you, you see the trend. The athletes that have the dedication, the grit, the, the hunger, the want, they usually last a little longer. Um, the ones who are talented, they get lazy sometimes because they depend on their talent when they're not doing well, right? But sometimes when, when they don't do well, then they just start questioning like, well, if I'm talented, I'm not doing well and I'm trying hard, then maybe this is not it for me, right? Uh, but but sometimes we're wrong too. Sometimes you do see talent takes you very 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 far, hmm. and those athletes are the best because they have both the grit, both dedication, and also the talent. Um, but yeah, um, there's a quote 
from Kevin Durant that my brothers, my brother always kind of remind the team is basically, you know, um, hard work beats talent when talent does not work hard, right? It's kind of like a reminder that it is, it is true, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So for us, we look for that more. We look for dedication. We look for um, that grit and we look for that loyalty because you need time to always develop something great. And time requires a lot of, you know, like different experiences, events, ups and downs. But if you're talented and you shoot to the, to the stars on day one or day two, we cannot teach that athlete, yeah. you know, the process, right? Um, so yeah, we prefer that any, on any given day. Right, right, that makes sense. What's next for uh, AGT and your team? So my team is actually going to uh, Texas in a few weeks for the uh, U.S. National Championship. It's a, a big event for all of the athletes in the United States to come together to compete for the national title. And then immediately after the nationals, uh, four or five days later, um, eight of us from my team will have to fly to uh, Hollywood uh, to um, compete in the next live rounds of AGT. Wow. Yeah, so it's live this time. Um, you know, uh, it's one shot, and everyone's gonna be voting from uh, at home. Uh, and how we make it through the next round is due to the voting done in America. So after we perform, and if we get enough votes, we will be uh, selected to move on to the next live round, which is two weeks later, uh, near September. And again, if we get voted into the finals, which is in mid-September, then we will compete with a third routine in the finals of September. So it's gonna be one month in Hollywood if we go from beginning to the end. Are you nervous? I'm not nervous about AGT. I'm more nervous about the Korean coach working with us during that time. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you think of them first, right? You, you As athletes, we think of our, our skills. How do we hold ourselves accountable to meet their expectation? Hmm. Because our sport comes first before the camera and the lights right? If we do well here, this will come, right? That's why I always remind our athletes, like, you know, don't worry about the medal, don't worry about the, the title. If, if you work hard enough, your worker will pay off, right? And you can celebrate later. But if you chase the medal and you chase the, the lights only, um, you, you might miss out on this process. So yeah, I'm more nervous about working with a Korean coach because the last week, the last time I was there, that one week that we had, I was the oldest in the group. Uh, I'm 32 years old. And everyone was averaging 23, 24. So whatever I did was being compared to them. And you can tell the Korean coach always makes an effort to come over and tell me, hey, you have to do it like this. He never says like, I know you're old. I know it's hard for you. He doesn't care about that, right? He just goes up to you and say, hey, do you see that kid? Okay, go make it like that. Or he'll tell me like, hey, earlier in the video, you were doing this. I need you to do this. And you cannot say anything other than yes sir and you bow and say thank you that's it so i'm more nervous about that process right, right. and imagine a month of that right like my body's going to be beaten up every day for a month and being the oldest in the group is very hard because my body's a lot slower than them even when we're warming up it just man it's you can't you can't just step out of it you can't just be like oh hey can i take a break you can't do that so yeah i'm more nervous about that <laughs> yeah well i uh you know I thank you so much for sharing this experience with us. And I look forward to, you know, in a few more weeks, 
we get together again and hopefully we can bring on uh, the other members of your team or your two brothers and talk more in depth about the experience after the second the second round, right? The, the right, next, second round. Yeah. 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 I look forward to that because, you know, we, we've talked about that in our, in our um, planning uh, after the show, um, after the next AGT round. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Definitely looking forward to it. I think uh, it'd be great to, to have, um, you know, more people from the team, my brothers. Um, I think my brothers would love to have a convo with you. So definitely looking forward to it. And, I, you know, I'm excited. Um, and I, I hope that we can sit after the final round, right? That just means that we went all the way through. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, thank you again. And good luck in Texas. And I know you have a lot of work to do. And um, we will catch up very soon and get back on this with the, with the bigger team uh, the next time out that, that we meet. Oh, thank you, Ken. Uh, it's okay. an honor to be here as well. Thank you, Long. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.